Well, let's see here. Today is uh, 30 December, and uh, just so you know, um, I've talked about this a couple times in the past few weeks, and uh, I, I don't know what will come of this, but obviously with the trees gone in the summer, it's going to be a little bit warm. So I am going to make an offer on a building this week. We'll see if they accept it, and uh, maybe somebody will counter-offer. I, I don't know how these things work, but uh, 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 that's just something for you to keep in mind is that... Uh, I, there may be a place where we actually meet in the future. It's a small little building, and it's in the uh, Gulf Gate area. It's uh, actually right off of 41 in an uh, industrial area. But um, uh, it's, it's good size, and um, so if it works out, uh, that's great. And one of the best advantages of I was telling my wife on the way over here is that it's behind Toll Brothers Funeral Home. So if I bore somebody to death with one of my sermons, we can just... <laughs> take them right over the funeral home and be done with it so uh, that's kind of a, a benefit right there but uh, other than that please keep that in prayer because this is something that I am I, you know I don't get really nervous about things so much as I just get I, I'm uncertain and I want to make sure that there's clarity and that this is what the Lord would want us so uh, if you're praying about things uh, maybe just pray that if the Lord doesn't want this to happen that it just doesn't and we don't go against his will and uh, obviously the reciprocal would be true then, that if he does want it to happen, that it will come about. But uh, anyway, there you go. And uh, today is going to be our 55th sermon in Genesis. And uh, we've been talking about Abraham forever, it seems like. And uh, uh, this is going to be the last of the life of Abraham. So it's a kind of a touching uh, sermon to uh, go through. But um, other than that, I don't have any announcements unless anybody here knows of anything in particular that we should... Uh, uh, bring up all I can tell the people on the uh, the uh, camera is that it is just bone cold out here today. It is just to me. I'm I've got layers and layers on, and it's not enough. But uh, anyway, it's a beautiful day. The sun is just shining and radiant, and uh, the sunrise this morning was glorious. But uh, uh, if we get a little uh, shivery and my voice starts to tremble, I apologize for that in advance. Um, anyway, we'll go ahead and go on with. Uh, uh, New Testament reading today, which would be from the book of Romans. We're starting chapter 10, and I'll just do 13 verses today. So, uh, as I said before, Romans 9 through 11 is Paul's great discourse on the Jewish people and uh, God's relationship with them in the past, at this time, and in the future. And um, uh, I just go through these very quickly with very little commentary. But uh, if you do want the Roman study I'm doing, I started it about a week and a half ago. And um, it, that'll take about a year and a half to get through. And I send out one verse a day with the commentary and an analysis. And sometimes the commentaries get rather long. They get into pages. But uh, uh, with this, I don't do that. This is just a short commentary for anybody that uh, is listening. All right. Uh, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And that, what does that imply? That implies that right now Israel is out. And he's talking about the nation of Israel, not the individuals, but the nation of Israel. They are currently out. And that's what that implies by saying that. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. All right. Their zeal for God right now is under the law. And that's carrying on to this day. And uh, we'll see the uh, book of Revelation coming into uh, focus here shortly. Whenever the church is taken out, Israel has seven more years under the law in order to get it right before the millennial reign of Christ. Anyway, that's coming. And um, he says in verse 3, for they being ignorant of uh, God's righteousness, meaning what God did through Jesus Christ, 
Uh, and also, as we saw with Abraham, Abraham simply believed God and God credited to him for righteousness. So in contrast to that, they, uh, they are seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And I'll make a couple points right out of the law based on that. Christ is the end of the law. He came, he said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So all people will judge, be judged by one of two things. They'll either be judged by the law, which is God's standard, or they will be judged by their faith in Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law on our behalf. So he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Five, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. Now he's going to talk of Moses who authored the law. You know, obviously God authored it, but went through Moses. Um, and Moses says, uh, the man who does these things shall live by them. Verse six, in other words, the man who does these things shall live by them. That's not by faith. That is actively doing something. And Moses says, if you do these things, you will live by them. But Paul says in verse 6, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, that's from Deuteronomy chapter 30, um, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, once again quoting Deuteronomy 30. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. It's by faith that we're saved. It's not by deeds of the law. And he's using Moses, who, like I said, he's the one that gave us the law. He's the great lawgiver to show us that the law isn't a faith in the first place. All right, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, this is a text verse, and I say it week after week, and it's something that every person here, there's about four verses in Romans that every person should memorize, and this is one of them. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And as I said, that's not really uh, uh, the second part, belief that God raised him from the dead is simply there because nobody would call on a dead Lord. So our salvation is conditional on the fact that Christ really did come out of the grave. And what does that mean? The wages of sin is death. If Jesus Christ had died, he would still be in the grave and therefore he didn't sin and therefore he did fulfill the law. So if you uh, call on the name of the Lord, if you confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say that if you stop eating pork and call on the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. And it doesn't say that uh, if you read only the King James Version of the Bible and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What it says is that if you confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So he very clearly explains what he just said in verse 9. Verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's Isaiah chapter 28. And it's, it is the most sure hope that any person can have, is that if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you will never be put to shame. Yes, in this life, we have people that will try to shame us, but he's speaking about the eternal there. We will never be put to shame. The moment you call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Ephesians says that you are sealed with God's Holy Spirit. That is a deposit or a guarantee of eternal life to come. You will never lose that. Okay? And he goes on and he says um, in verse 12, For there is no distinction between the Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. 
Now, I want to explain something here. People use that verse to say that there's no difference between the church and Israel. That has nothing to do with what he's talking about there. He is saying there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, which means by implication that there is a distinction between the Jew and the Greek. Because if he says this is a Jew and this is a Greek, then they must be different things. It's the same thing as saying there's no difference between man and woman. Okay, By saying that, there is a difference between men and women. Women didn't stop be being women when Christ was crucified. Men didn't stop being uh, men when Christ was crucified. It's the same thing with Jew and Greek. What he is saying is that in the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we are all one. We are saved by the same Lord, and we are saved unto the same salvation. Okay, that's what he's saying. Yes, there is a difference between a Jew and a Greek. And yes, there is a difference between a male and a female. It is the salvation that he's speaking of. So don't make that category mistake there. And then he will close up today with verse 13, which says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That goes right back to verse 10, 9, okay? If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's done. It is done. It is done. Thanking the Lord Jesus for his glorious salvation and having fulfilled the law on our behalf because not one of us could do it. Not in one minute, not in a lifetime. It could never happen. Jesus Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. We have uh, this day in history, which I do every week. And today is 30 December. And on this day in history in 1853, the U.S. bought about 45,000 square miles of land from Mexico in a deal known as the, does anybody know what the deal was called, where we bought, it was the last major land acquisition in continental U.S. history. It was called the Gadsden Purchase, okay? And if you look at the southern area of New Mexico and Arizona, uh, that's where we got it, and it's got some of the mountains in the Sierra Madre, I think it's called, where there's a lot of gold. Uh, Yuma, Arizona is included in there. So uh, we got a lot of very valuable land, and I imagine we got it for a rather cheap price. But anyway, that was back in 1853. And then in 1922, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, was formed. And I was thinking about that is that uh, uh, that was formed, and then it eventually crumbled because it's a uh, faulted system. And uh, what is happening in our nation today is exactly what happened there. We're trying to move to communism and away from capitalism. And, uh, you know, it, it's just if we don't learn from history, we end up repeating it. And so uh, I would hope that we would start to make right decisions about our government and our elected officials because we are getting. And I'm going to talk about that in the sermon today, uh, the father of Moses and what he did and how we are so so immensely getting away from those precepts. Anyway, um, 1924, Edwin Hubble announced the existence of other galactic systems. And uh, I was thinking about that as well, is that imagine, you know, it, hundreds or thousands of years ago, people looked up and they saw stars up in the sky and they didn't know what it was. And I mean, for all they knew, it was just a, a velvet blanket and there were holes punched in it. And, uh, you know, they had no concept of what was going on out in the, the greater uh, galaxy. And then all of a sudden, you know, Copernicus gets out his telescope and he, he realizes there's more out there than uh, we imagined and that the uh, Earth is not the center of the universe, which the Bible never taught. People want to say that, the, oh, you know, Christianity was wrong all along. No, the Christians were misreading the Bible because it never said that. But uh, anyway, then we, uh, you know, develop more and more in our, our knowledge of the universe and... Uh, one day, Edwin Hubble realizes that we are just one galaxy of many, many galaxies. And then he realized we have the red shift and the blue shift, you know, the Doppler shift, which tells us that this galaxy is moving this way and this one's going that way. And, and uh, so we've got these 
huge, immense things that are going on in the universe, and it all comes from the mind of God. And in his mind, the, the workings of the inside of an atom really are no different than the uh, workings of the entire universe. The Bible says he spoke and it stood firm. And it says he stretched out the heavens by his wisdom. So this is the glory of God, and we can't even comprehend it. And some people will look at those heavens and they'll say, well, one, God couldn't have done this. But then other people will say, you know, what an immense God we serve. And I would hope that you are the latter and not the former, that you understand that God really did these things and that he did it by his wisdom and that there is one God, one creator, and one Lord Jesus. Okay, 1927, the first subway in the Orient was dedicated in Tokyo, Japan. And uh, I spent six years in uh, Tokyo and I got to ride on those subways, although I'm sure it wasn't the same subway. But uh, it was kind of a big uh, historic moment for the uh, Orient. And then in uh, 1940, kind of on the same category, but a different uh, mode of transportation, California's first freeway was officially opened, and it was the Arroyo Seco Parkway that went from Los Angeles to Pasadena. And uh, this is kind of fun. In 1953, on this day, the first color TV sets went on sale, and they were at the low, low price of $1,175. So in 1953 dollars, that's probably like $20,000 today. So we can see how, how we have moved in just, what, 50, 55 years or so. It's amazing. For $1,175, you get a top-of-the-line TV, and it's this thin, and it's, you know, uh, HD, and there you go. And then finally in 1993, we have uh, the Israel and the Vatican established diplomatic relations. And if you don't understand that, yes, the Vatican is a nation all by itself. It, uh, the Vatican uh, used to print its own currency, although I don't think they do. I think they're under the euro now. But uh, the Pope is also a king, basically, or uh, you know, a, a ruler of his own sovereign nation. And so uh, they establish diplomatic relations. And uh, you know, whether you think of the uh, Vatican actually supposed to be doing that or not, they do. And um, I do believe that the uh, Pope that is alive today isn't going to last long. I mean, that's obvious. But when he does, uh, the uh, last Pope will come in. And I believe that for several reasons, which are not just extra biblical, but also in the Bible. And it's something that the book of Revelation points to. But uh, I think that the times are coming to their fulfillment now. So exciting stuff. Anyway, um, here we go. Today's passage, which I want to read to you right now before we get into the actual sermon. Uh, let's see here, Genesis 25, verses 1 through 11. I think I said 18 earlier, and I think I mean 18, but anyway, um, uh, I see I typed something that may be wrong. Genesis 25, and then, um, yes, we're going to go through verse 18. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan. And where was I? Um, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. Verse 4. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abidah, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac his son to the country of the east. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite. 
the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Be'er Lahai Roi. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebayoth, then Kedar, Adbiel, Mibsa, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadar, Tima, Yatur, Nafish, and Kedimah. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, twelve princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died, then was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. All right, today's passage, as I said, it, it, we see the end of the life of Abraham, this great man of faith. And his life shows the unfolding process of any believer who is drawn to God. If you have followed these sermons in Abraham and how his life is structured, it is the same as the salvation call of an individual. A believer first hears the call, just as Abraham did. And eventually he comes to the point, the moment, where he decides, I'm putting my faith and my trust in God alone for salvation, just as Abraham did. It is by this act and this act alone that a person is declared righteous and he's justified before God and nothing else will do. After this call then comes the process of sanctification where we walk with God and we are molded to God in the knowledge of him and in his image. And this is the same thing that happened with Abraham. And I want to stop right here. I want each of you to consider your own life right now if you have called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and are you following this example that is laid out in the Bible because this is why his life is noted in the way that it's noted is for us to put aside you know we may have uh, strife with our husband or our wife or we may have um, uh, trials or troubles or whatever and all of these things are secondary issues to the way that we should be living our life the overall model of the life of Abraham all right. So we do have things. We have pride in our life. We have, you know, whatever sin that is besetting us. And by following these examples of people like Abraham and Abraham in particular, we will learn to live the life that God wants us to and to walk properly in his presence. So it's something that we cannot overlook is how God has structured Abraham's life. Anyway, we're going to fellowship with God in a couple of ways. We're going to do it through prayer, just as Abraham did. We're going to do it through reading the Bible, just as Abraham did. And I say that even though he didn't have a Bible, he had the Word of God. And he would rely on that Word in his life. So we want to use that as an example there. And then he also communed with other believers. And he made sure, for example, that his son got a wife from a community of believers rather than from the Canaanites. Once again, how we should be molding our life. This is the life of Abraham in a nutshell. And it is the life that we are called to as well. In this great man's life, we saw the following pattern. I'm going to break it down by chapter. In chapter 12, he was called out by God. In chapter 15, he placed his faith in God and his promises, and he was declared righteous. I think it was uh, verse 6, 15, 6. And Paul speaks about that all through the New Testament. After this, he walked in faith each step of the way, until his faith was tested to the highest measure in chapter 22 when he was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. 
And this is where our life may come to at some point. Are we going to be like Abraham and say, you know what, God has called me to do something that I really do not want to do. And am I going to trust that his promises are going to stand fast? In chapter 23, we saw Abraham's sorrow at the loss of his princess and his bride, Sarah. If you remember that long chapter about buying the grave and how that pictured something that we'll talk about a little more today. But even that mournful account, chapter 23, where he lost his wife and where, you know, he went through all of these things, it showed us his great faith. He was putting his faith in something beyond the present. In the last chapter, he sent out for a bride, for his son, and then he lived out his years content and full of life, just as we've seen in the passage and we're going to look at today. Abraham has been a picture of Jesus Christ. He's been a picture of God the Father and a picture of the faithful soul that God looks for. And we want to make sure that we want to be like Abraham in this way. So let us carry with us the many lessons of his life that God has displayed in his word for us to learn from. Let's go to our text verse today. It's from Isaiah 51. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Abraham is called the rock from which belief is hewn, and the faith of Abraham is, the, is what digs us from the pit that we were born in. Because of such faith, God blessed Abraham and increased him, and he will do the same for each one of us as we live in faith just as this great man of faith lived. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. That brings us to our first thought today, which is life goes on. From the time that Sarah died until the time that Abraham died in today's passage is a period of 38 years. From the time of our last Genesis sermon, which was two weeks ago, because we had a Christmas sermon last week, where Isaac received his wife, Rebecca. That was three years later, so it's a period of 35 years. During that time, we see today that Abraham had a wife and he had concubines as well. For us, just like for Abraham, life goes on after tragedy and loss. Abraham made the most of his time and he had lots of children as the years went by. One of the important things that we need to learn about from today's verses, though, is the scant amount of information that we actually receive about Abraham's 35 years from the time of Rebecca until the time of his death. God only gives us the details that are necessary for us to know him and what he is doing through history, as we've seen already so many times. In other words, there are billions of people on the world, and God picks just a couple of people because these are the people that are pointing to what he is doing for each one of us all the way off into eternity. So this is how we need to perceive these things from the life of Abraham. Now, in the coming four verses, we're going to see Abraham's line continue on through another wife that he's going to take. In all, he, it's going to list six sons, it's going to list seven grandsons, and it's also going to list three great-grandsons of Abraham and make 16 people in all. Verse 1, Abraham again took a wife and her name was Keturah. Now, if you can mentally follow the progression of what's happened, Sarah dies, and only after Sarah dies does Abraham find a wife for his son Isaac. Because Sarah is dead, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, moves into Sarah's tent. 
Now, only after that has occurred, Abraham is noted as having another wife. The wife of the son of promise, Rebekah, receives the tent of Sarah, not a second wife or a concubine of Abraham. And this follows the Bible's concept of what we call dispensationalism. All right, I've talked about this a little bit in the past. God is working through dispensations or certain uh, ways of relating to the people of the world. There are seven dispensations noted in the Bible. Let me give them to you. The first is man innocent. That was when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. Okay, it didn't last very long, but that was man innocent. The second one is man under conscience. Remember what they did. They ate the fruit of the knowledge of the good and evil and they fell, but they were under conscience during that time. They now have a knowledge that they didn't have when they were innocent. The third one is man in authority over the earth. We move all the way to the time of Noah. The earth is destroyed. Noah is given promises and he's given authority over the earth. And from there, it goes to man under promise. That's the time of Abraham. Sure promises are given to Abraham and then they go to his son Isaac and Jacob. All right, so this is man under promise that we're in right now. And then we come to the next one, which is man under law. Obviously, that's when Moses received the law and the people of Israel become the dispensation that God is working through in the world. We talked about that in Romans. The fact is that the law can't save anybody, but God is showing us that in human history so that we can be led to something greater. And of course, that something greater is our sixth dispensation, which is man under grace. Jesus Christ comes, he lives the law, he fulfills the law on our behalf, and then we put our trust in him and we live by the grace of Jesus Christ and that alone. As a matter of fact, the very last page in the Bible says, the, or the last uh, verse in the Bible says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. That is the dispensation that tells us that we can have salvation by faith and by faith alone. But there is one more dispensation, that is man under the personal reign of Christ. And that is coming soon to a millennial reign near you. As soon as this dispensation is over, we're going to have the seven years of tribulation on earth, which is actually man under law. And then from there, we will go on into the millennial reign of Christ and then into eternity. All right, so those are the seven dispensations. But in those seven dispensations, other things are going on in the world around us. But there is this one overall pattern which God is doing for the people of the world and through the people of the world. The same is true with how the Bible presents the sequence of the life of Abraham and now as it moves into the life of Isaac. Abraham's wife that he marries after Sarah, her name is Keturah. And this white, this name means incense. As we're gonna see in a few verses, Abraham has other concubines as well and he has children through them but only this wife, Keturah, is mentioned. In all honesty, and I want, I want to be frank with you, I could not find any reason why this lady's name was mentioned, but none of the other concubines, but her name, which means incense, may explain why she's listed. Anyway, verse two, and she bore him Zimram, Jakshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jakshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. Keturah has six sons by Abraham, and in turn, the sons of only one of her sons is listed, and then only the sons of one of her sons is listed. The name Keturah, as I've said, it means incense, may be given as 
incense will flow out and eventually disappear into the world. And it seems that most of these groups of people did exactly that. And so that's maybe why this lady is mentioned here. I don't know that for certain. However, two of this lady's sons, Midian and Midan, are going to be mentioned again in the Bible. They're going to play a role in the purchase of Joseph. Remember, there's the 12 sons of Israel, and they sell their brother Joseph to the Midianites, the Medanites, and they carry Joseph down to Egypt, all right? And so that's a, a, one of the roles that these people are going to play. They will also uh, have a role in the exile of, e of Moses from Egypt to the place called Midian. And when he goes there, he is going to marry a girl named Zipporah, who is the daughter of the priest of Midian. So we do see these people again. We're only going to see Midian after the selling of Joseph, though. We'll never see Midan again. Anyway, this guy that is the priest of Midian, the father of Moses' wife, Zipporah, is a very prominent figure just prior to and just after the exodus of the people from Egypt. All right, it is from this man, Jethro, that a notable size of our American government, believe it or not, comes from. When Moses was in the wilderness, he was the sole judge of the people. Okay, there were 603,550 men, plus women, plus children, all of this great group of people that had come out of Egypt, and Moses was the sole judge of them. So if they had a problem, they went to him, and he would be the one to determine it, or the, you know, determine the outcome of it. But when Moses' father, his father-in-law, this Midianite, saw what he was doing, he said, listen, this isn't good. And he gave Moses some advice, which eventually became the foundation for our American society as well as many other societies in the world. Let me read this passage to you and explain it. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Both you and this people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. Of course, if you've got 600,000 people, that's like having everybody in Sarasota going up to one guy to ask what to do with every little thing in their life. So he says, listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. So Moses is here as the mediator between the people and God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So you have Moses up here, and you've got a body of people going like this, a structured society. He goes on and he says, and let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall judge for themselves. All right, where was I? Um, so it will be easier for you for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands, then you will be able to endure and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So the idea is in America, we've got the Supreme Court and then we've got the, the uh, what do you call them? The, uh, the what? Appellate courts, thank you. And you've got the district courts and you've got all of these different levels of courts that are going down like this. And it's the same thing with having the executive, the legislature and the judiciary. And then you have you know, uh, state governments and local governments and town councils and all these things. And this is the way that it was meant to be in America. And our American founding documents will tell you that they went to this type of wisdom to found America. So you have a very small upper government and you've got a 
very large lower set of governments. And that is exactly the opposite of what is happening in America today. We now have it like this. We've got a very top-heavy federal government, and the people on the bottom are being smothered by these overburdening regulations. We have moved away from the biblical model. We are moving towards communism, and we are moving to a system that will be antithetical to what the Bible would have for us. And so we need, when we make our votes, to vote for people that will return to a limited form of government. I personally think it's probably too late for us, but we need to still exercise our votes in the wisest way we can because we are moving away from what God has ordained in his word in this nation today. Anyway, the wisdom of Jethro was carried on in the establishment of this nation, and it can be traced right back to the verse that we're looking at in the sons of Abraham through this concubine named Keturah. Her name, Incense, has proven true in this sense because from her, the line, from her line, the wisdom of Abraham has literally wafted around the world. So there we go. That may be why this particular woman is listed. Anyway, we'll go on to verse 4. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abidah, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Now, of all of these sons of her, only Midian is mentioned again in the Bible. And then of all of the other children, the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren, only one is mentioned as well. His name is Ephah. And they are mentioned in the book of Chronicles with all of these people. But outside of the book of Chronicles, only Midian and Ephah are mentioned again. And Midian is Ephah's father, and they are mentioned in a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 60, which is actually speaking about the future blessings of Zion. Okay? We don't even know exactly who these people are in the world, and yet God does. And he gives a prophecy about them, something that's coming. Let me read it to you. It says, The multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. So even if we have forgotten who these people are or where they've settled in the world, the Lord hasn't. And someday every person from every line is going to be able to look back on their genealogies, kind of like what we see with Ancestry.com today, and we're going to see how God has taken these verses from Genesis and woven them into his great plan for all of the people of the world. Now that we've looked at the entire group of people who came from Abraham, I want to note that every single name of the people that I've just mentioned, the sons, the grandsons, and the great-grandsons of Keturah, not one of them is in the ancestry of Jesus. I went through every one of them, their names, and all of the people that followed after them, and none of them are listed. And this is very similar to what we saw with Ishmael, who had nobody from any of his lines in Jesus' ancestry as well. And I'm going to talk about that in detail in just a few minutes so that you can understand why this is the case. For the most part, these people that came from Abraham and Keturah are a very troubling group of people that are still in strife with Israel to this day. Let's go on to verse 5. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Isaac is the son of promise, of course, and he's the inheritor of everything that Abraham has. And we already saw that in a previous sermon when the servant of Abraham went up to get a wife for Isaac. And we found out that it was Rebekah. And at that time, he told this to the family of Rebekah. It says, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great. 
and he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camel and donkey. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. Now we can sit back and we can imagine maybe why all of the other sons of Abraham are still at animosity with Israel to this day. It may be a part of the reason because they're jealous that this line of promise, Isaac and then Ish, I'm sorry, Isaac and then Jacob and then the sons of Israel and the Jewish people to this day are the inheritors of God's blessing. Of course, these people moved out around the world, but stories of the favoritism that Abraham showed to Isaac have been passed down as well. And that doesn't mean just the physical blessings. It means also that the people of Israel have been blessed in many other ways. And yes, there's jealousy about this, and it's not right that there is, but this could be a part of the reason why there's this great animosity. The Jewish people have been far more educated, and they've been far more prosperous in both mental and spiritual understanding. But of course, along with these type of blessings comes even more material wealth and more blessing. And of course, along with that comes more animosity and more jealousy. There is a way around this, but I got to tell you what, very few in the world take it. Instead of being angry at the Jewish people, the people of the world could join in their blessings and thus be blessed. But it is the exceptional person that will do this, and there are very few exceptional people in the world. We see in the book of Ruth, she joined to the people of Israel, and she was blessed, and she actually became an ancestor of Jesus. Then we have certain denominations in Christianity which bless Israel. They understand that this is God's people and that we are to bless them. But for the most part, Christian denominations have fallen away from the blessings of God because they have fallen away from blessing Israel. And so I got to tell you, it would be much better rather than to hate and to take than bless in order to be blessed. And it's our job as a group of people, especially the church, to bless Israel. But once again, we have the other people as well, the, the Arabs and all these people that are simply taking and they're, they're angry at the people of Israel when it's exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. Those who curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. Anyway, verse six. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. The same groups of people who were excused from the inheritance are also excused from the home. But while they lived in the home, he gave them gifts as well. And that very well may have included Ishmael, who lived down south, and he came up, I'm sure, for family parties and stuff, and he got some, some gifts from uh, Abraham. But when they were old enough, these sons of Keturah and all the other concubines, when they were old enough, he gave them the boot. He got them out of the house, and he sent them eastward away from Isaac. And this means that he probably did this even before they got married. So the grandsons and the great-grandsons that are mentioned here would never have known Abraham. These people would have, before they got married, been kicked out, or maybe right when they got married, he says, okay, it's time for you to leave, because he wants to keep the promise and the inheritance on Isaac alone, because that's what God mandated, all right? It is Isaac who would receive all of the inheritance and his descendants through Jacob would continue on to the Messiah. And all of these other people are excluded from the Messianic blessings. The rest were sent east, which in the context of the Bible, if you were here during those earlier sermons, if you weren't, you can go watch them. But east is a place of false worship. 
it's a place of exile. Whenever Israel was exiled, they were exiled off east to Babylon, all right? And it is a place in the Bible that almost exclusively lacks a knowledge or a worship of the true God. And that's what he's doing. He's sending them east in this kind of, uh, uh, I guess it's like an allegory of what God is doing in the world by sending people east. They're in exile. If you can see the picture of Isaac, though, he is a picture of Jesus. He is the inheritor of all things from God the Father. And the amazing thing for each of us, and this is throughout the New Testament, again and again and again it says it, is that when we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we share in that inheritance. Not only do we share in it, in the book of Revelation, it's chapter 21, I think it's the uh, seventh verse, it says that those who overcome, meaning you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you overcome the world, you are saved by his blood, he says you will inherit all things. And Paul says that we are joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ. That means that God the Father will withhold nothing from us when we move into glory. So whatever trial, whatever trouble, whatever tribulation you are facing in this world now, don't worry about it. Look forward to the future promises of God and I assure you that you will be more than abundantly pleased at whatever little part of this life you give up for the glory that lies ahead. All right, let's go on to our second thought today, which is the man of faith. Verse 7, this is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Abraham was first noted in Genesis chapter 15, and he was the main focus of the biblical narrative all the way through Genesis 23, where at that time Isaac began to take the lead role. His life in the time of Canaan, that he lived in Canaan, was 100 years. He was 75 years old when he went to Canaan, and so he's 175 years at his death, and this, therefore, would be the year 2184 Anno Mundi, or from creation. The life of Abraham in the Bible is singularly noted as the epitome of a person who lives by faith, and he is going to continue to be noted this way all the way through the rest of the Bible by the greats of the Bible, including Jesus himself. But the narrative of his life now comes to, the, to an end in these few short verses. He's 175 years old. His grandfather died at 148 years old. His father, Terah, died at 205 years old. His son Isaac is going to die at 180 years old, and his, uh, his grandson Jacob is going to die at 147 years old. And so you can see that the average lifetime of people at this given time in history was about 150 to 200 years. So he lived a, a, a normal age for the, the people at that time. But to put Abraham's death into perspective, we should note that Isaac is now 75 years old. And his brother, Ishmael, the firstborn of uh, uh, Abraham, is 89 years old. And guess what? The twins, Jacob and Esau, who haven't even been mentioned yet, they won't be mentioned until uh, our next sermon, they're already 15 years old. So Abraham actually got to hold these two grandchildren, bounce them on his knee, and one of them was the son of promise, who is Jacob, who becomes Israel. They're alive before Abraham dies. And it's something for us to think about. This is just something for you to make a mental note of. This verse in the Hebrew actually says the days of the years of the life of Abraham. The great scholar, I quote him from time to time, his name is Adam Clark, says this about this particular verse. He says, there is a beauty in this expression which is not sufficiently regarded 
Good men do not live by centuries, though many such have lived several hundred years, nor do they count their lives even by years, but by days, living as if they were creatures of a day, having no more time than they can with any propriety call their own, and living that day in reference to eternity. So the one thing that if you can take anything from this particular verse, it would be to understand that we have one day, all of our life, that's all we have. The past is gone and there is no guarantee of the future. All right, we have one day every single day, that's it. And we are to live that day in respect to eternity. You know, the old Latin saying, carpe diem, sees the day generally is something that we want to do for ourselves. And that's not what the Bible asks us to do. It says to take this day and to seize it, not for ourselves, but to seize it for eternity. And Moses sums up this thought in the 90th Psalm. Here's what he says. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So all we have, and we can spend it looking at all kinds of crazy things, or we can spend this day, this one day of our life, looking for the eternal. And I would, if nothing else out of today's sermon is that you would take that to heart and you would live this day for eternity, this day. That's your only day that you have. And that kind of goes with the uh, devotional that I typed today, which will come out in five days if we're still here, is that we need to make sure that what we are doing is of the maximum benefit to Jesus. And it's uh, a verse that's describing the life of Paul. And he says, I would use myself completely. Every fiber of his being he would use this day for the eternity. And that's what I'd like you to learn from that verse. Let's go on to verse 8. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. This verse here is the fulfillment of what God said to Abraham all the way back in chapter 15. Let me read that to you. It says, Now as for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Now let's read it again. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age. So there you go. He attained the years that God had determined and he was gathered to his people. And this verse, along with many other Bible references, implies that Abraham did not cease to exist, but that his soul has continued on in another sphere. He is with his fathers in another world, in a world of consciousness, but without a body. And we have an example of this right from Jesus' own mouth, and it comes from Luke chapter 16. Here's what he says. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was, at the, uh, was laid at his gate. Now I want you to understand before I go on that Jesus gives parables and he never mentions people by name, with the exception of this one. And so we want to take this to heart that he is speaking literally. Go on, going on, he says, um, uh, he's laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. There's a couple things that we can learn from that. One, there really is a hell. And there really is a hell for people. And people really will go to that hell. And secondly, that there is a way of being reconciled to God and going to that place of comfort where Abraham is and where Jesus says this beggar went to. So pay attention to the Bible because it does proclaim one way to be reconciled to God. Now, if you read this 
verse in the King James Version. Let me read it again. It says, then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. If you read this in the King James, it doesn't say he breathed his last. It says he gave up the ghost. And I want you to know that that is not really accurate if you think it through. Abraham had no power to either keep or to give up his ghost. There's only one person that had that power, and that was Jesus when he died on the cross. The terminology that's used in the original languages actually bears this out. And Jesus says as much in John chapter 10. It's another of the countless verses which point to the deity of Jesus Christ. Let me read this to you. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life. In other words, I can give up my own ghost. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. So if you understand why I'm making that a verse which points to his deity, man has no authority over his own ghost, but Jesus did. And therefore it proves that he is divine, even in something that's as innocuous seeming as that. Abraham did not have that power. He breathed his last. He did not give up his ghost. Okay, verse nine. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and there Sarah his wife. Now, Isaac is noted first in this particular verse. It says, and his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, because he is the son of promise, and he's the one that has the authority over the house of Abraham. Ishmael is an invited family member to the burial of this great man of faith, who's Abraham. And unless you heard my sermon on Genesis chapter 23, and if you didn't, just go watch it online, the terminology in this verse, it may sound a little confusing and it won't make much sense. It says, um, he was buried in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, and he gives a bunch of names and all of these details. But in short, Abraham is buried in the cave which Sarah was buried in. And the names of these people and the locations point to death in this world, a world which is owned by Satan and which is the repository for the souls of the dead, all right? The purchase of this cave is pictured in the purchase of us back from the power of the devil. As I said, that's all detailed in the chapter 23 sermon. And so the cave for believers such as Abraham is now one of comfort rather than a place of torment. And understanding this, the parable that I read you from Jesus now makes a lot more sense. That is the purpose of why God put those particular verses and those names and those details into chapter 23 and he repeats them again at the death of Abraham. Verse 11, and it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt at Be'er Lahai Ro'i. The final verse of this particular section here is given to show us that the blessings of God on Abraham have now been passed on to his son Isaac. What should be noted in this verse though is that it uses the general term for God, Elohim. It doesn't use the term Lord or Jehovah. The work of Jehovah, anytime you see this listed in a verse, is in the covenantal sense or in the passing of the promises of salvation down through humanity. The blessings of God or Elohim, because he's the creator mentioned in Genesis 1, are speaking of worldly blessings, such as crops and maybe herds, money, servants, and all that kind of stuff. So when you're reading the Bible, I want you to look for these little details in there. This particular sort of blessing, though, this worldly blessing, 
now rests on Isaac, just as it did on Abraham in the past. Isaac is dwelling at a place called Be'er Lahai Ro'i, which is the place where Hagar, remember if you were here during that sermon, and if not, go back and watch it, Hagar, the maidservant of Sarah, gets pregnant by Abraham. Sarah mistreats her, and so off she runs into the wilderness. And while she's out there, she thinks she's going to die. A well is shown to her by the Lord, and she calls the well the well of the one who lives and sees me. This area where this well is, is where the blessings of God first come upon Isaac apart from Abraham. All right, and that leads us to our third and final thought today, which is the generations of Ishmael. Verse 12. Now, this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. We now come to these seven verses, which are given as a branch off of the main biblical narrative. If you've seen in the past, the Bible is like a funnel. It keeps going down and down. But as we're going into this funnel, narrowing towards Jesus, there are side branches which come off. This is the seventh set of generations or genealogies listed in the Bible. I'm going to give you the first six so that you have a memory of what we've gone through. The first is the generations of the heavens and the earth then the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, the generations of the sons of Noah, the generations of Shem, and the generations of Terah, Terah being Abraham's father. In the sermon on Genesis 5, and you may not have been here for that, and you may not remember what I'm going to bring up here, but it's very important, very important information that's in here, and it's a little bit confusing. But anyway, in that sermon, Genesis chapter 5, I talked about the spelling of the word for generations in Hebrew. The word is toledat, okay? I'm not gonna go into any great detail here, but I will mention that this word toledat can be spelled in a variety of ways based on the structure of the sentence around it. In this word toledat, there can be one or two letters known as vav. It's the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, okay? And the number six in the Bible invariably represents man, such as man being created on the sixth day of creation, all right? Before the fall, in the first set of generations, which is Genesis 2, there were two vavs, two of this letter vav in this word, toledot. And after that, it is not spelled that way again, all the way up until the time of King David. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass this out so you can look at it while I'm talking, and I'll try to get this onto the video as well. And that way you can see what I'm talking about, because this may seem like tedious information, but this is about as important as anything God has hidden in his word. And it's in the Hebrew. You'd never know this in the English. But let me take this over here. Just pass this over to people so you can see what I'm talking about. You've got this word toledot. And as I said, you've got Genesis chapter 2, where it's spelled with two vavs, and all the way through until the time that King David is uh, mentioned for the first time in his generations. <laughs> it's never spelled with two vavs again until then. And the reason why is because, as I said, Vav is the number of man in the Bible. After the fall, one of the men fell out of the word. It's a picture of the fall of man, okay? During this time, from Genesis 2 to the time of King David, this word generations, or toledot, is mentioned 30 times. And in those 30 times, three of them have no Vav at all. As I said, it can be spelled with two, or one here, or one here, or none. And only three times it's spelled with no vav at all. The line of Ishmael is the first time that there is no vav mentioned in this word. 
And the reason why, and I'm certain of this, is because there is nobody from Ishmael's genealogy listed in the ancestry of Jesus Christ. And further, as Paul clearly explains in the book of Galatians, Ishmael and his mother Hagar are pictures of the law. So it's saying that basically the law cannot save anyone. And therefore, there is no hope for anybody who is of the spiritual line of Ishmael, meaning living under the law. It is a picture of bondage. A person must move from the spiritual line of Ishmael to the spiritual line of Isaac, from the law to grace, from Adam to Christ, or they cannot be saved. And as I said, there's only one other line of people in these these 30 generations that have no vav in it. And it is in the line of, believe it or not, Levi, the son of Israel. Okay, he's mentioned twice and both times he's mentioned there's no vav in his name. And yet all of the other sons of Israel are listed in there and there's a vav in there. And why would that be? Why would there be no vav in this original language that God gave to the people of the world for the son Levi? The reason why is because Levi is the administrator of the law. God is giving us these amazing clues in his word. And like I say, if you don't read the Hebrew, you would never know these things. But he is telling us the enormity of our decision to follow Christ and to trust in him alone, apart from works of the law. And if you want to know how absolutely certain I am of this, remember that the Jewish people are living under the law even to this day. They would not put these clues in here and they would not do this if they knew purposely they'd be condemning themselves by following the law. In other words, God has shown us these things and they're only realized and understood when you come to Jesus Christ. God disqualifies anybody from the prize who chooses to participate in the demands of the law. And I want everybody here to remember this because if somebody tells you that you have to attend church on a Sabbath day, such as the Seventh-day Adventists, that is an attempt to fulfill the law. And that separates you from the grace of God. If they say you can't eat pork or be safe because that's under the law, then you will not be in right with God because of that. Or if they say you can't get a tattoo or you must be circumcised or any of these other crazy things that people reintroduce into the law. And I got to tell you what, somebody posted just yesterday on a group that I'm on on Facebook and they asked the question, is it okay in Christianity to get a tattoo? And my answer to them was, go back to Leviticus chapter 19, and it says right there, you can't get a tattoo, and it's not mentioned anywhere else in the entire Bible. The answer is, it's fine to get a tattoo if you're a Christian. Whether you want to or not, or whether you think you should or not, is irrelevant. It's, if you say that somebody cannot have a tattoo because the law says you can't have a tattoo, you are reintroducing the law, and you're violating what's on that piece of paper right now. You have fallen from the grace of God because you are reintroducing the law. So people are confused about this and so I gave them a big long discourse of exactly what the Bible says and why we are free from the constraints of the law. The very next post, somebody quotes Leviticus 19 without any context and the implication was, oh yeah, no, you can't get a a, a tattoo. You gotta get these things straight. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. Personally, I don't want a tattoo because I'm handsome without one, but you know, gee whiz, anyway. A second point to me to be made about what we're looking at right now is that this genealogy of Ishmael is given 
And then after that, it's going to be followed immediately by the genealogy of Isaac. We're not going to do that today. But the custom of the Bible is always to give the lines of the people who branch off from the Messiah before giving the Messianic line. This was true with the history of Cain before giving that of Seth, and the history of Japheth and Ham before giving that of Shem, and then the history of Haran and Nahor before giving that of Abraham. The pattern now continues with Isaac. It gives Ishmael and then Isaac. This pattern is known as the doctrine of divine election. God divinely makes a choice. I'm going to take this person and not this person. Isaac is the son of promise, even though he's younger than his older brother Ishmael. The promise skips over Ishmael, and it goes directly to Isaac. This pattern is going to continue all the way through the Bible, and it points to the work of Jesus Christ, the second Adam who replaces the misdeeds of the first Adam. Paul clearly explains it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And next week's sermon, if you're here, will speak in detail about the doctrine of divine election and the doctrine of predestination. And they're to be found in just a couple of verses about a lady that has twins in her womb that are fighting. About three or four verses. And we there is more information that I could give you in 50 sermons. So next week is just going to be a brief little uh, talk about what God is doing in human history based on this, this uh, fight between Jacob and Esau in the womb of their mother, Rebekah. Okay, verse 13. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebiot, then Kedar, Adbiel, Mibsa, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadar, Tima, Yatur, Nafish, and Kedemah. The line of Ishmael is given here to show the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham back in chapter 17. Here's what it said. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and make, I will make him a great nation." God promised. Now we see that God delivered. Only God can look into the future and see what will occur. And by speaking to Abraham as he did, the word was binding. And so now we see the fulfillment of that promise by the listing of Ishmael and his 12 sons. Verse 16. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, 12 princes according to their nations. In this verse, the only little thing I want you to know is that two words are given to designate the dwelling places of Ishmael, towns and settlements. The first is Chatzrahem in Hebrew, okay? And that would be like speaking about tent dwellers. And believe me, they are still doing this in the Middle East today. You see the sons of Ishmael out there dwelling in tents all around the outskirts of Israel. And if you travel throughout the Middle East, my brother's been over there, he probably saw them as well. The second word is Tirotam. And it speaks of things like uh, some Bible translations, we'll call them castles or towers. It's mountaintop fortifications, maybe caves. And if you think of a modern parallel, it would be apartment buildings or something. People that are living in fixed places. Verse 17. These were the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years, and he breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people. Now, I've already mentioned that the only people or the only generations of people in the from Genesis to David that don't have a vav are Ishmael and Levi okay 
Interestingly, and th this kind of stuff just it, it just tickles me to death. Ishmael and Levi both died. I'm sorry, Ishmael, Levi, and his son Abra uh, Amram, who is the father of Moses and Aaron, the givers of the law and the high priest of the law, are the only three people in the entire Bible to die at this age of 137. They all died at the same age, and they're all missing the vav in their generations. So I think that that is way too much of a coincidence. Ishmael pictures the law. Levi and his son Amram are in the generation of Aaron and Moses, who are the givers of the law. I think God is quite clearly telling us that the law cannot save anything and that we need to move away from that and into an understanding of who Jesus Christ is and his grace. That may not make any sense to you, but I got to tell you what, when it gives the age of a person at death, that age is there for a reason. There are no wasted words in God's word. And the fact that only three people died at this age and they all died without a vav in their genealogy to me is rather important. Anyway, let's go on to verse 18. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. Once again, this verse is given to us to remind us of the promise that God made when he spoke to Hagar in chapter 16. I'm going to read you that. It says here, He shall be a wild man, his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. And here's the fulfillment. It says, He died in the presence of all his brethren. Once again, we see God's transcendence over time. He sees what will occur. He tells us what will occur. And then he shows us what did occur in fulfillment of his word. These details are not boring repetitions. And I don't ever want anybody to think that. I understand that when you read the Bible, you think, why is this in here? There is nothing boring about it. There are exciting features of God's working in human history for the sake of the people of the world. And he's showing the fulfillment of his own word again and again to prove the veracity of what he is going to say when he enters or ushers his son into the world. And then all of the promises that hinge upon Christ's return and the eternal state. This is why he's giving us this, is to say, I have a surety in his word. Anyway, the words here, he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren, have a multiple meaning. They can be translated, in other words, in different ways. And they all beautifully apply to the sons of Ishmael. The phrase can mean he will live in the presence of his brethren. He can live in the face of his brethren, meaning at en enmity with him. Or he, can live to the, he will live to the east of his brethren. Those words all can be translated that way. Fittingly, these people moved east of Israel. They are in the face of Israel. We see that every single day. And they are in the midst of Israel, living there. There's Arabs all over living in Israel. So it's exactly as the Bible foresaw. These words that were spoken about Ishmael and his sons 4,000 years ago are still relevant to the world today. The spiritual lessons, though, that we are to learn from Abraham and Ishmael is that we can only find salvation and reconciliation with God through faith. The deeds of the law will only separate us further from God. They make us knowledgeable of our sinful state, and the law is then given to direct us right to Jesus Christ, who fulfilled this law on our behalf. He alone fulfilled the law, and now he offers you the chance to call on him and accept what he did on your behalf. So I want to take just a moment, and I want to explain. I think everybody here has heard this a million times, but maybe somebody's never taken it to heart. And I want to explain to you 
Christ's work in relation to the law and what you can do to receive it. Jesus Christ gave the law through Moses. And he says, if you do these things, you will live by them. And then the law itself says that the righteous or the just will live by faith. So the faith is actually at enmity with the law. If you're righteous by living in faith and you're trying to do deeds of the law, then you have a contradiction in your own life. The law only condemns us. It shows us how utterly sinful sin is. I wouldn't know what it is to covet, but the law says don't covet, and all of a sudden, sin springs to life in me because now I know what coveting is, and I covet. All right, that is the purpose of the law, is to show us that we cannot meet its demands, and we need something greater. And so Jesus Christ came, and he fulfilled the law for us on our behalf. Then he says, if you will put your trust in me and what I have done and not worry about any of these other things, then I will declare you righteous. But if you keep trying all of your life to please me in some way, you never please me because you already have sin in your life. The wages of sin is death. You're already dead. But I will regenerate you. I will give you my Holy Spirit. And I will give you eternal life if you will simply turn away from trying to do it yourself and trust me. And that's what Christ asks. Just put your faith and trust in me. And as we read there in Romans 10 today, if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Why call on him, on the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart? Nobody would call on a dead Lord. Yes, he came out of the grave. He was victorious over the power of the law and it is nailed to the cross with him. So that's what we need to do is just call on Jesus in spirit and in truth and ask him to forgive us of our sin debt. All right. Uh, next week, we're going to look at Genesis 25 verses 19 through 24. That's five verses, and it's a lot of information, and I'm only going to touch on it. I mean, colleges have course after course after course about what is found in these five verses. So I hope you can make it, and I hope you'll take it to heart. Anyway, one more thing before we take communion. Our uh, weekly poem is called Living by Faith or Dying by the Law. Abraham again took a wife, and Keturah was her name. And she bore to him Zimram, Jakshan, and Midan. Also Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. From her, these six boys came. And then her son Jakshan begot Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. And the sons of Midian are by name and number five. Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah, it would seem. All of these were the children of Keturah to keep her name alive. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines too. And while he was living, he sent them eastward with a backpack, away from Isaac his son to the country of the east. It's true. From the Bible, the years of Abraham's life we can gauge. It was a total of 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age and was gathered to his people old and full, dying with no fears. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron. The son of Zohar the Hittite, for silver he gave, the field he purchased from the sons of Heth after Sarah was gone. There Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife, and it came to pass after Abraham's death, you see, that God blessed his son Isaac in his life. And Isaac dwelt at the well of the one who lives and sees me. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom the Egyptian Sarah's maidservant to him bore. And these are the names of Ishmael's sons, each one, according to their generations. Let's name the whole store. 
the firstborn of Ishmael, Nebiot, and Kedar, and Adbiel, and Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, and Hadar, also Tima, Yatur, Nafish, and Kedema, all sons of Ishmael, these their names by their towns and settlements, near and far. Twelve princes according to their nations, these were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years in his generations, and he breathed his last and died, so sounds the funeral bell. He was gathered to his people when he died. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur. As you go toward Assyria by Egypt on the eastern side, in the presence of all his brethren, his name does endure. Thus is the story of the Bible men, but the story continues on after them. Everyone, everything leading to, eventually to Jesus, who would come and give his life for us. What a gift, what a treasure that God has given in his word. He pours out blessings which are beyond measure because he is a great and awesome Lord. And so, Lord, help us to live aright and bring you glory in all we do. Help us to live by faith and not by sight. Help us to be faithful followers of you. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this, uh, just this beautiful day. It is a little bit cold, and uh, I uh, thank you that you uh, just uh, provide us with so many different things, warm days and cool days, and you give us rain just in time. You're just wonderful in every way. And help us to live our lives for this day, looking forward to eternity and taking time to tell others about the glory of Jesus Christ and taking time to, to uh, help others to understand you and what you've done and to also study your word and to read it and to want to know it more and to live it all the days of our life. Lord, there's so many things that we fail at, but help us just to to do the things that are right in your eyes and everything else, it just doesn't matter. Help us live for that eternal state. We just want to give you the praise and the glory and the honor that you're due in the exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.